This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde reviews Liz Truss and the Popcorns, the Tory tribute act sounding a death knell for irony. Michael J. Fox on pity, Parkinson's and a potential cure. And Poor Things Intimacy Coordinator, Elle McAlpine, discusses consent, orgies and Emma Stone. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, as Liz Truss attempts to revive her career with the launch of popular conservatism, Marina Hyde asks, if the leader who was outlasted by a lettuce is the answer, what on earth was the question? Read by Evelyn Miller. Roll up, roll up. Roll up a fat one for the launch of the popular conservatives. Apparently, a new vehicle for the Trussite wing of the party. I know what you're thinking. Wing? Wing? Given everything that happened, surely Liz Truss can't boast a wing. By rights, the wing it would be most analogous to is the type found floating amid other debris somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. Instead, it seems to be holding a launch in central London. In advance of the event, a spokesperson for Trust said, Liz remains very popular with the grassroots in the country and always enjoys engaging with them. A statement that makes me picture Truss lying down on a lawn, burrowing her face into it and doing her cheese riff to the roots of the grass. Surely a less deranged image than the one where she's a national treasure. Anyway... We'll come to the actual event in a minute. Regrettably, noises off to the production included the former Trust Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, announcing on Tuesday morning that he would not be standing again at the next election. I see. Someone who went to university with Kwarteng told me of the night he slept on their student house sofa after a party, vomited on it, 
then simply got up and left in the morning without cleaning it up. In many ways, the country now lives on that sofa. Kwarteng leaves our politics poorer than when he found it, metaphorically, yes, but more importantly, literally. Nevertheless, a sizable chunk of his allies can still be found honking that the thing with Quasi is that he's almost too clever. Liz Truss is too a lot of things. As one pollster put it of her take-all-comers unpopularity score, it is ironic that popular conservatism couldn't find a more unpopular spokesperson if they actively tried. Certainly the popular conservatives' take on popularity is the only context in which fellow popcon Jacob Rees-Mogg could feel like Taylor Swift. Perhaps the popular conservatives are mindful that certain high-profile supporters, Andrea Jenkins, really put the moron into oxymoron. Either way, they've chosen as leader a person that no one normal has ever heard of. Mark Littlewood, former Lib Dem press officer turned libertarian think tanker turned whatever this is. Mark's launch speech repeatedly referred to conservatism, not actually a word, but perhaps that doesn't matter. As for Nigel Farage, he was, how to put this credibly, present but not involved. The former UKIP slash Brexit party leader was keen to stress, with a sledgehammer twinkle, that he'd only be there in his capacity as a GB News journalist, just as he supposedly only attended last October's Conservative Party conference in his capacity as a GB News journalist. I know what he means. Simply being a journalist means you can turn up at all the most terrible events for a gawp. I call it a get-into-jail-free card, and have used it myself to attend a full set of the times Nigel resigned from leading one or other of his parties. In fact, I note the launch of the Popcons was itself held in one of the many venues in which I have seen Nigel resign. Even so, let's just remind ourselves of the full, updated CV. Nigel Farage has now been a banker, a politician and a journalist. In order to amass all six infinity stones of the LinkedIn profile, of course, he will need to swell that resume with estate agent, traffic warden and sex offender. But look, if anyone can do it, Nigel can underestimate him at your peril, and so on. In terms of other personnel, PopCon launch speakers included Rhys Mogg, hates the nanny state, but still has a nanny, and the woman standing in Chris Grayling's old seat. Huge clown shoes to fill. The audience included David Frost and Pretty Patel. Alas, Trussite Simon Clark had got the hook after what Mark Littlewood called a lone wolf operation to call for Rishi Sunak to resign. We didn't want that to be a part of the story of our launch, Littlewood continued. We're about ideas, not personnel. As for those ideas, 
The group hail from the party that has been in power for the past 13 years and for 31 of the past 44 years, but would now like to reform Britain's bureaucratic structures to allow conservative values to flourish. They have rightly identified that the key question on most British lips is, just when are these people going to catch a break? Can we please get them some sympathetic bureaucracy already? For now, the Popcons officially join the Conservative Party's so-called five families, meaning there are now six families, which really doesn't work. Then again, none of it really works, does it? Still, let's play out with Liz Truss, who we were told before the event would be speaking from the heart, in a big riff. A hugely exciting prospect, given how catastrophic even some of Liz's tightly scripted speeches have been. Comedically speaking, Truss is the ultimate improv player, a bit terrorist, capable of blowing up markets and mortgage bills simply with the words, yes and. Please join our organisation. Get involved. This is just the beginning, was her clarion call. People don't want to be unpopular, ran another gambit. But the irony is, these policies are popular. And yet, is that the irony? I can't help feeling that other ironies are very much available. And that only at this particular auto-satirical stage of public life could someone outlasted by a lettuce be casting the shortest prime ministership ever as her salad days? That was Listen Up. It's Liz Truss and the Popcorns, the Tory tribute act sounding a death knell for irony by Marina Hyde, read by Evelyn Miller. Next... The actor Michael J. Fox was diagnosed with Parkinson's when he was just 29 and one of Hollywood's hottest stars. He talks to Catherine Shaw about how he's coped, what frightens him, and why being a saint is so boring. Read by James Sobel Kelly. I am not the story, says Michael J. Fox. Kind and firm and for the only time in our conversation, unpersuasive. The story is the power of optimism, that it's really a choice. Acceptance doesn't mean being resigned to something. You look at it and say, what does this truth require of me? He leans over for a sip of Diet Coke. It's like with our glorious ex-president. The only answer to that is truth. You can get caught up in the mythology being presented, in the nativism and the hatred, the resentment and the foulness of it all. It'll consume you. So you have to fight this stuff, he says. Hang on, I say. In terms of Donald Trump, isn't truth losing the battle? I don't think that we will go down that path, Fox says. I think he's in the backstretch and he's gaining speed. What's important is that we keep reminding ourselves who we are. I think we'll prevail. But the world now is not pretty. Fox is speaking from his office in Los Angeles. Assistants mill in the blurred background. He hovers center screen. Chestnut hair, graying stubble, 
Still a whisper of pixie to those neat features, despite his 62 years, more than half of them lived with Parkinson's. Fox's story, and he is the story, is one hell of a tale. Cute Canadian titch quits school, moves to Los Angeles, dumpster dies for food, then lands the role of a yuppie teen on the smash sitcom Family Ties. Superstardom is sealed by Back to the Future. By August 1985, he has the U.S.'s number one film in cinemas and the number two, Teen Wolf, and the biggest TV show. He is on every magazine cover, every chat show, every bedroom wall. He headlines more movies, The Secret of My Success, The Hard Way, Casualties of War, and marries his family ties love interest, Tracy Pollan. One day in 1989, his little finger begins to twitch. Aged 29, he is told he has Parkinson's. Usual life expectancy? 10 to 20 years. Fox hits the bottle. He goes AWOL on overseas film sets until Pollen tells him she has no interest in raising children with an alcoholic. He cleans up, sorts another sitcom, Spin City, to fit between breakfast and bath time, and in 1998 goes public with his diagnosis. In 2000, he sets up the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, called PD Cure until Pollen queried, Pedicure? So far, it has distributed two billion pounds. This is broadly the story told in Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, Davis Guggenheim's documentary, which is nominated for a BAFTA, but not, somehow, for an Oscar. It didn't knock me down with grief, says Fox at the snub. I think there may be something to the fact that it won four Emmys. He's no stranger to small screen or comedy snobbery, and anyway, he says, I already have an Oscar. They gave him an honorary one, and I can't say I don't enjoy it. Still was made around the time he received that award, in 2022. It splices archive footage from his work, readings from his brilliant memoirs, and an intimate sit-down with Guggenheim. Fox is bruised, literally, from all the falls, but unbowed, upbeat, and witty. Over our video call earlier this week, he is in many ways the same. Mind still razor sharp. Does he see any parallels between himself and Guggenheim's previous subjects? No, he shoots back. Bill Gates is much taller than I am. Still sweet. I like your prints, he says, leaning in for a little tour of the wall behind me, an unlikely yet enthusiastic fan of 1950s British rail posters. But his story has skipped a few chapters since Still was shot. In the film, he has spells of steady focus that are absent today, when his body rocks in almost constant motion. He doesn't discuss his ever-present pain, but racked keeps coming to mind. The emotions he's able to display on his face are more muted, which can make conversation tricky. Likewise, his sometimes mumbled speech. When he does smile, it is profoundly moving. Still explores the gap between 2022 Fox, grasping for calm, and the spookily youthful 80s pinup. Or maybe the overlap. In the clips, he is forever kinetic, careering through doors, zipping on skateboards, gliding over car bonnets. Michael is always moving, 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 says Guggenheim, speaking to me last week. You wonder, 
Is he being graceful like Fred Astaire, or is he, like, half-falling? He still wants to race across the room to hand me a Diet Coke, but he shouldn't. Some of the most striking material Guggenheim and his editor assembled comes from early seasons of Spin City when Fox, not yet public with his diagnosis, finds his body betraying him. His left hand twists behind his back, the contortion of a man worried that if people knew he had Parkinson's, they would no longer find him funny. It was weird to watch that, Fox confirms. Sitcom patter made medical evidence. How about the other footage? People do sometimes ask how I feel seeing myself young and athletic and balletic, he says. Does it upset me? No. Do I change the channel? Yes. It got him thinking. So he did something he does a lot. Wonder what Muhammad Ali would do. He rang Ali's widow, Lonnie, who reported that her husband loved revisiting footage of his old fights. He could watch it for hours, Fox says. And I'm also very happy, too. I'm very proud of the work. I like that it means something. What's really cool is when people come up and say, they don't know quite how to word it. Thank you for my childhood. I can't claim responsibility for their childhood, but I understand what they're saying. There was a connection there. The connection between Ali and Fox is obvious. Both became famous as fleet-footed entertainers, then accidentally legendary for having Parkinson's. Both converted that power into philanthropy. What I find wonderful about Michael, says Guggenheim, is that he did not have any ambitions to improve the world. He wanted to become famous and rich. When he did, he bought a sports car, and another sports car, and another sports car. When he was diagnosed, his first response was to drink and run away, to do all the wrong things. What Fox admired most about Ali, he says, was how lightly he wore the love lavished on him and his unexpected new responsibilities. They were often toasted at the same events. I loved standing next to him, says Fox, because that was the greatest way to be invisible. They wouldn't see you, only him, but he had no time to talk about what he meant to the world. He did what he did, and to a much lesser degree, I just did what I did, because it seemed the right thing to do. Excess reflection is pointless. It just is what it is, he says. It didn't defeat me. I wish it was a heroic thing, I'm not saying, yeah, bring it, bring it. I hate it. It sucks. It's a piece of shit. It's tough to get up in the morning and keep going. But I have a beautiful family in this office with trophies. Further veneration holds little appeal. I'm not interested in hagiography, Fox says. I certainly wasn't interested in being held up as any kind of saint or martyr. Because it's boring? It is boring. It's really boring. Life is something to take on its own terms. If you try to create a jewel case to put it in and highlight it a certain way, it won't work. It's not going to be of value. Fox declined a producer credit on Still, so I remain a credible witness. Otherwise, everything I say or do is up for question. What's my motive? But he did request more candid footage of himself being, very moderately, cocky. People with disabilities can be assholes too, he says. That is also why he liked playing a version of himself on Curb Your Enthusiasm, who may or may not be hamming up his symptoms to annoy Larry David. Fox has not acted for a decade. Is it tough to be himself all the time? It's a struggle. It's very difficult. I get sick of talking about me. I know me too well. He keels towards his drink. And I never know what I'm presenting to people because 
It's not necessarily what I'm feeling. You say to people, whatever you see me doing, I'm actually doing something else. But it's not anyone else's responsibility to second-guess how I'm feeling. I don't want to make other people correct their paths or rearrange their position to deal with whoever I am at the moment. Watching people watch him is a nice thing, but a strange thing. They're not dealing with me. They're dealing with who they see me be. Before I spoke to Fox, I was planning to ask if he had any qualms about being such a prominent Parkinson's spokesperson, given his exceptionalism, his relative youth and fitness, his fame, money, and access to the latest interventions, and his not having developed dementia, as up to 80% of Parkinson's patients do. It takes two seconds in his company to scrap that question. Parkinson's is brutal, no matter how cushioned you are. Yet Fox wants pity, he has called it a benign form of abuse, even less than he wants deification. Rather, he maintains that the disease saved rather than derailed him. That is central to his charmed life, not cosmic payback for it, though Guggenheim's film lets that thought dangle a little. Fox's tight grip on the silver lining is what first caught the director's attention. The film's unspoken conundrum, says Guggenheim, is what happens when an incurable optimist confronts something perfectly designed to defeat that optimism? Does Fox have an answer? The last thing you run out of is a future, he says. It doesn't matter where you are or what you do, you'll always have the future. Until you don't. Then it's moved. And it really mattered. But I'm in it for the final scene. I'm not leaving early to get to the car before the crowd starts. Walking home one night after filming, Guggenheim says he was surprised to find himself envying Fox. These are dark, dark times. The Middle East, the election in America. Is it possible to choose optimism? Michael seems to do it, and I don't. And I'm trying to learn how to. Fox pauses when I put this to him. It's really scary what's going on right now. My children are young adults. I feel bad about the shit they're going to have to deal with when I'm gone. But the only answer is to be optimistic. If you obsess on the worst-case scenario and it actually happens, you've lived it twice. I don't want to do that. I want to live on a daily basis. And that is how Parkinson's may have helped. Almost as soon as he told people he had it, he had a mission to get rid of it. It just became my whole purpose. And then that was the answer. I didn't have time to think about it. And Parkinson's has been by far the most exciting thing, much more than my career. It may even have been more successful. Run with the aim of spending every cent, every year, the Fox Foundation has bankrolled more research than the U.S. government. We want to cluster bomb all this stuff, he says. Whatever's going, we go in and investigate it. Do risky funders. He's excited about deep brain stimulation and optimistic about biomarkers, which paved the way to identifying the disease before symptoms show. By the time his finger began to twitch, 75% of my dopamine-producing cells were dead. But if we get that early, we can treat that prophylactically, and we can eliminate it. I ask about spinal cord implants. Set for wider trial later this year, they bypass the brain in an attempt to correct motor function. Might he consider that? I don't view any of this stuff as an opportunity to explore paths for myself, he says. Plus an unrelated tumor on the spine, removed in 2018, rolls him out. I have a little bit of Parkinson's plus. He smiles, and then he goes a bit cryptic. 
there is something else on the horizon. He is aware of research in an area which I can't say specifically that he is sure will make a real difference. I bet you dollars to donuts, he says. Over what sort of time frame, I ask. That's exactly how I don't think, he grins. But okay, I'll go with you. I think within the next 10, 15 years, we'll have a viable solution in some form or another, whether it's getting it cured or pathologically avoided. I'm stunned into silence. Fox, ever friendly, does my job for me. The follow-up question is, will I be around for that? I doubt it, but it's okay. I don't think in personal terms. You just want to meet the moment. And I think the moment is nigh for big, big answers. That was I Hate It. It sucks, but it didn't defeat me. Michael J. Fox on Pity, Parkinson's and a Potential Cure by Catherine Shord. Read by James Sobel Kelly. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Enjoying this podcast? Then we think you might love the audio long read. The podcast of The Guardian Long Read Column, showcasing the best long-form journalism. From politics to psychology, food to technology, culture to crime, The Long Read offers great stories and big ideas. Subscribe to The Audio Long Read wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, safe sex scenes are now an essential part of hashtag MeToo filmmaking. Here, intimacy coordinator Elle McAlpine talks to Elle Hunt about the challenges of working on Yorgos Lanthimos' fantasy drama Poor Things and facing the sexism and hostility that emerges from this still burgeoning industry. Read by Evelyn Miller. This article contains spoilers. Three years ago, shortly before dawn, Elle McAlpine was catching the train home, having just orchestrated an orgy. She had left the set of sci-fi series Brave New World, a nighttime shoot where more than 100 dancers descend into sexual revelry. McAlpine laughs to remember her journey home, 
sitting on the tube alongside her fellow passengers, still processing the scene she'd just presided over. I was like, if people knew what I've just done, she says. For all intents and purposes, it looked real as well. All these amazing dancers just undulating on the floor. McAlpine's latest project to raise eyebrows is Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, the multi-Oscar-nominated fantasy adapted from Alistair Gray's novel. The extravagant, otherworldly look of Poor Things has also been widely acclaimed. The content, however, which finds Emma Stone playing a grown woman with a baby's brain, setting out on a globe-trotting journey of sexual self-discovery, is proving polarising. As Poor Things' intimacy coordinator, McAlpine worked at the intersection of both. Brought onto the project at a late stage, after Lanthimos and Stone had already settled on its parameters, McAlpine was tasked with how to bring them to life as comfortably as possible. Both the director and star have praised McAlpine's contribution in interviews, though Stone admitted to having been stupidly sceptical at the start. By then, they'd already had months of rehearsals, says McAlpine. They'd built a language together. It was her way of saying, I've got me, Yorgos has got me, I'm okay. But, as McAlpine said to Stone in their initial conversation, she wasn't the only player who could benefit from an intimacy coordinator. It takes two to tango. With Stone's primary on-screen partner, Mark Ruffalo, playing the Kaddish lawyer who lures her away from home. In the case of the Brave New World orgy, it took 120 and took two days to film, remembers McAlpine. During a dance, all of a sudden, everybody strips off, they fall to the floor and start having sex. For that scene alone, McAlpine worked alongside three other intimacy coordinators, each assigned a group of 30-odd dancers to look after, plus a choreographer to oversee the overall effect. An actor herself, McAlpine was hands-on, demonstrating how you penetrate on screen. If you can move your coccyx, just arch your back slightly, it looks fantastic, she says happily. Those orgy scenes were amazing. By the time she graduated from drama school in September 2017, McAlpine had done a few kissing scenes and simulated sex in a short film. Non-penetrative, she adds. Then she participated in a workshop led by Ita O'Brien, hailed as one of the frontrunners of the intimacy profession. The workshop was open to media. A photo of McAlpine, her back arched, appearing to come to climax, became a two-page spread in the Sunday Times magazine. McAlpine was surprised by not only the convincing effect of the choreography, but the pride she felt seeing the result. It blew me open. Though some directors do discuss on-screen sexual boundaries with their cast, many lack the necessary understanding. Plus, on-set hierarchies make it hard to speak freely, says McAlpine. There is a language in this work that helps make it professional that helps people open up and really consider what might make them feel uncomfortable. Soon after, McAlpine began training under O'Brien, working on shows such as Netflix's Sex Education and It's a Sin. 
In many of the latter's sex scenes, McAlpine is just off-camera, hiding behind the bed or in a cupboard, ready to intervene. Back then, only seven years ago, and after hashtag MeToo, there was still widespread industry scepticism about the role of intimacy coordinators, says McAlpine. She recalls having to advocate for the role as much as the actors she was working with, almost having to sell yourself and explain what we do. Not every director was receptive. Often, O'Brien and her team were perceived as a threat to the production, says McAlpine. There being mostly women meant there was also an undercurrent of sexism. I definitely felt it, especially as a young woman, working with very seasoned people who have never had this red tape before. McAlpine is still only 33. At the beginning, when we were trying to vouch for ourselves, I felt such a pressure. The scene had to be good. Sometimes the hostility was avert, even attacking, says McAlpine. There was no room for mistakes or improvements. I was kicked off a couple of sets because I wasn't helping, clearly. On one project, she went beyond her remit, blurting out cut on a scene. I just felt so uncomfortable, because the actor was really uncomfortable and I could tell. After 18 months of working with O'Brien, McAlpine co-founded, with fellow actor and movement director Catherine Hardman, her own business, EK Intimacy. These days, not only is she more experienced and self-assured in her work, the industry has changed to make room for it with the Screen Actors Guild making intimacy coordinators mandatory on sets in 2020. Now, meetings with directors feel more like a chemistry read, says McAlpine, and the role has gone from being mostly about safeguarding to allow for more creative expression. There are still risk assessments up to your eyeballs, she says, and paperwork to protect the production from legal action down the line, but more and more, intimacy coordinators are exploring what can be expressed through sex on screen. It's about understanding the tone, what the intimate storytelling is, how it serves each character, what kind of positions you can think of that are slightly more nuanced and exciting, says McAlpine. A leading actor told her that, to get into character, he thinks about what they are like in the bedroom. After all, it's not necessarily reflecting the actor's own lived experience, she adds. If you've had a conversation about the sexual expression of a character, I tell you, they will then deliver the most amazing performance because they're so filled up with creativity. When a scene calls for more than an actor is willing to give, there are modesty garments, cushions and protective layers. It is possible to make an actor appear naked in a bathtub when they are in fact fully clothed, says McAlpine. There are so many tricks you can do. For her, there is also an educational side to the role, a responsibility to show sex as it actually happens in real life, with pubic hair, lubrication, stained sheets and all that awkward fumbling. Last year... The Children's Commissioner found that 10% of children had seen pornography by the age of 9 and 27% by age 11, 
leading to lower self-esteem as young adults. A 2017 YouGov survey also showed that 32% of young people had never seen a condom used in sex scenes on screen, perhaps explaining their low use. McAlpine recalls watching Grease as a child and being bemused by the broken condom scene. I'm like, you taught me so little in that moment when there was an opportunity. Let's actually really think about what sex we're showing here. Certainly, the sex on poor things has been intensely interrogated. Lanthimos has said he has never understood the prudishness about sex on film, especially given the relatively laissez-faire attitude to depictions of violence, even for younger audiences. Even sexual violence, McAlpine adds, we're much more willing to watch rape than we are a fully consensual, slightly off-the-beaten-track sexual scene. What does that say? In some ways, Poor Things challenges that narrative. Bella's discovery of sex, alone, and with partners, is key to her development. A pleasure ranked alongside food, music, and dance. The character's childlike curiosity and gleeful pursuit of her base impulses are so beautiful, says McAlpine. I think there's a severing of head and body in general in our society. We are so cerebral. To her, Tony McNamara's script posed the question, what would happen if we listened to our bodies more? And sex is a massive part of that. You can sense with orgasm what people strive for when they take drugs. It's oblivion. And we are constantly seeking it. But the debate over the film's representation of sex can't be ascribed simply to mere prudishness. Though some have criticised Bella's enthusiasm for sex, or furious jumping, as she terms it, as a male fantasy, the controversy has largely settled on the middle portion of the film, when Bella finds herself broke and in Paris, and goes to work in a brothel. Here, she is confronted by the darker underbelly of her passion, including violence and misogyny, all the while navigating it, uncomfortably, with her child's mind. The understanding behind the transaction is that it's something that she consents to, and wants, until she doesn't, says McAlpine. She sees Bella's stint in Paris as a dark, violent reality check, and typically masculine contrast to the free and fluid feminine essence that she has embodied thus far. Culture and society are imposed on her. Of course, McAlpine adds, the reality of leaving sex work is much harder than this film suggests, but it had other places to go. She admits that Bella's development made those scenes a challenge. This is a baby's brain in a woman's body, and we're doing furious jumping. How does that sit with me, as a human being? It was not that she felt judgmental, McAlpine adds. I went in to do a job. As the intimacy coordinator, you're there to serve the vision. But she resists the characterization by some of Bella as a sex worker with the mental age of a toddler, McAlpine herself imagined her as a 16- or 17-year-old. Did she have to think that, for her own self-preservation? Though she did not discuss it with Lanthimos or Stone, McAlpine agrees that, subconsciously, that might have been a factor. 
I think at some point there's an autonomy there that I don't think children have. She's making decisions. I understood where she was at in her development, and it didn't feel too jarring. The discussion provoked by poor things, an unwieldy and often unsettling proposition, at least speaks to the thorniness of representing sex on screen. Intimacy coordinators may be able to ensure everyone's comfortable on set, but that doesn't extend to the audience. The film was given an 18 classification in the UK, only after changes were made to a scene in which a man brings his two young sons to the brothel to learn about sex. The intimacy scenes between the boy's father and Bella were shot without the child actors in the room, says McAlpine, making certain shots quite difficult. But they were approached with the same care, constant communication and strenuous attention to consent as the rest of the film. McAlpine laughs to recall an early conversation with the youngest boy's parents, briefing them exactly on the scene. They were like, oh, he watches Game of Thrones all the time, so that's fine. That was With Orgasm People Strive for Oblivion Poor Things Intimacy Coordinator on Consent, Orgies and Emma Stone by L. Hunt Read by Evelyn Miller That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review or let us know what you want to hear more of. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Evelyn Miller and James Sobel Kelly and presented by me, Savannah Ayode greaves This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.